Welcome to the Heights Sermon Series Podcast, where each week you'll hear a new message that'll help you with your life shaped by the Word. Well, good morning, everybody. Hey, I know we're in a hurry to get done here, wrap up church, get home, watch Texas A&M beat Alabama in the SEC Championship. So I'm going to go as fast as I can. I'm only going to breathe like three times during the sermon today so that you you can do that. I want that for you, okay? So we'll get going here. Hey, it, it's crazy out there. It, it's crazy. It's, it's dangerous. I, I would imagine some of us might even say, hey, it's evil out there. And, and I don't, it doesn't feel like it's going away. It doesn't feel like it's changing. As a matter of fact, it it just feels like it might get more evil, more crazy, more dangerous out there. And that's why we've got to be prepared to fight, right? To fight in, in here. Wait, that's, that sounds strange. Well, let's, let's see what Jude's talking about. We are continuing today our, our three Sunday series. Today is our second Sunday in Jude. So if you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bible with me now to this great letter, this powerful letter. It's short, but it packs a punch. You'll find Jude right at the end of your Bible. Go to Revelation and back up one. Uh, Jude takes place right before Revelation. And today I'm going to be reading out of the English Standard Version. I told you I was going to read this letter all three weeks. It, it takes a few minutes to do that. It's short, but it still takes some time to read. And so since I'm doing that, I thought I would change up the translation. Last week, I read out of the New Living Today, the English Standard. Now, I, I think if you're holding both translations right side by side, you'll see they say the same thing. But they are a little bit different. As a matter of fact, kind of the way you can under all the, understand all the translations of the Bible is there, just think of a spectrum. On one end of the spectrum is readability. The other end is accuracy. On the end of accuracy, their goal is not just to be accurate, but to be readable. And and on the end of readability, their goal is still accuracy. But that will be kind of the the spectrum. On the real accurate side, boy, they're going to be honing in on how to correctly interpret each single word. Sometimes as you move toward readability, they're zooming out just a tad and saying, hey, how do we best interpret the phrase and so a lot of time, a matter of fact, almost every time you see a verse on the screen, that's the English Standard Version. Uh, a lot, more and more when I'm reading, especially long passages or difficult passages, I, I read from the New Living, primarily because it's just easier crossing your ears. It, it's easier to hang on to a, a little bit. But if you were looking at them side by side, you, you're going to see roughly the the same thing. But that's the difference, readability and accuracy and finding that balance. So today we're reading the ESV, that, like, that translation like New American Standard, King James, those are moving way toward that accuracy side. So let me begin here in Jude. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Hey, you want to know something, folks? That's God's heart and will and desire for you. Mercy, peace, and love. 
Maybe right now you're sitting in here and you, you feel like you're getting a big no from God. Maybe you've just heard a big yes from God. Maybe you're wondering, does God speak? Because I'm not even sure what that sounds like or what that would mean. Hey, in all of these things, let me tell you what God is doing. He's trying to multiply, not just add, not just have you experience, but multiply mercy, peace, and love into your life. Verse 3, beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend. That's our key word. That's where we get the phrase fight for you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt... Hey, did you, did you notice who Jude just credited with leading the people out of Egypt, leading them through the Red Sea? It's Jesus. Same God. We don't have a different God in the old and a different God in the new. He doesn't change personalities from the old to the new. He is the same God, Jesus, yesterday, today, and forever, is what Hebrews 13, 8 tells us. And there he is, leading the people through the Red Sea, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, talking about the false teachers here, those bringing false ideas, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, Wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. He just used ungodly three times in one sentence. And of all the harsh things that, whoops, number four, ungodly sinners 
have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth, boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, uh, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear. Hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. And to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. So Jude is short, but packs a punch. There is a lot going on in that. Last week you saw, we saw verse 3, kind of a, a key phrase, a key idea that, that sets this book up. And in that we get a key word, contend. It means to fight, okay? We're ready to fight, so we're, we're trying to understand what that word fight means. But that word contend also means to give intense effort. Folks, intense effort is to describe how we protect the faith, defend the faith. Intense effort should describe how I want to grow, understand, and learn my faith. Intense effort should describe how I want to live and apply that faith every day, everywhere in my life. Intense effort should describe sharing that faith, defending that faith. We are to contend with the faith, but, but not out there. It's, it's in here that he's pointing us to do this with. It's with what he refers to as false teachers. I think you could also add false ideas. You know, I kind of wonder, are these false, are, are these false teachers, are they real believers? It says here that they crept in unnoticed. Okay, they're coming into the church. They're coming into the body of Christ, but unnoticed. You know, if one of my kids came into our house, I wouldn't say they crept in unnoticed. They might surprise me, but I wouldn't say they crept in unnoticed. That almost sounds like an outsider, doesn't it? But here, whether they are believers who have fallen away, fallen far away from the true word and and from what God has said, fallen away from the faith handed down, or whether they are not believers, they're just saying they're Christians, they're, they're Christians in name only, but not really Christians. Either way, they are bringing to the church an, a, a false ideas. And the key idea that Jude is dealing with is that they're saying that, hey, sexual immorality, not really a big deal anymore. God's grace, God's kindness has got that covered. You know, that, that, that doesn't matter anymore. You know, it's interesting to use the word sexual immorality. You know, what, what is sexually immoral in America anymore? You know, I, I think if you go back, I don't think you have to go too far. 25 years ago, 
50 years ago, I think, across America. And whether they're a churchgoer or not a churchgoer, a believer or not a believer, I think there would have been a pretty generally accepted list of things. This isn't okay. This isn't right. And we would have had a common belief of that. Would you agree with me that list has gotten shorter and shorter? You know, I'm not sure what's on the list anymore. I'm not sure what in America we, we would say is, is wrong anymore. And so when somebody is saying something is wrong, well, well, then we think of that as being mean-spirited, un, unkind. And that's what we've got to remember, folks. This isn't about what Pastor Randy said or what this denomination says or what that church says. Folks, it's the Bible that says this. And we believe the Bible. And we don't just see it as a great book, a special book, an important book, or maybe even falls into some category we call holy books. We believe it's the Word of God. I, 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 don't, I don't have an option of what I'm going to do with it or, or not do with it. I can try to understand it and then obey it. But it is God's Word that says, hey, there's sexual immorality. You're, you're, not, you're not to look to the culture to take your ideas and cues. And that's what's happening in Jude's, Jude's day. They're letting the culture lead on that. And hey, we're to be leading from God's word. And God's word says, hey, here's what's sexually immoral. And I'm not randomly calling out phrases. I'm calling out specific things that God's word says over and over and over is sexually immoral. Sex before marriage is still immoral. Sex after marriage with someone other than my spouse is immoral. Sex after a marriage has ended, death, divorce, whatever it may be. I mean, folks, to be honest, you know, we're adults, we get a little bit older, you know, we've already been down that road. It's like, what am I saving myself for? It's immoral. Outside of marriage, it's immoral. Transsexual sex, homosexual sex, bestiality, incestuous sex, over and over and over, these things are put on a list of what is sexually immoral. I think now we're all unduly uncomfortable enough. We can list all these things in a negative way, or we could say it in the more positive way. Anything outside of one man... And one woman in the bonds of a loving marriage is sexually immoral. You know, you'll hear a lot of people today inside the church say, you know, Jesus never even, he never even addressed homosexuality. Okay? You know, I talked a moment ago about, I'm reading out of the English Standard today, and and there's a new living, and there's these, what are we doing? We're trying to understand what's in that word. What's in that phrase and idea? But you know, then, even then, sometimes just a word, we don't see everything going on in that word. I don't know what comes to your mind when you read in the Bible and you see the word sexual immorality. Jesus talked about sexual immorality a lot. It's the word pornea. And the word pornea, not just by Bible readers... Not, not just by the Bible writers, by anybody in the Greek culture that heard the word pornea, they knew included in that was all of the things I just mentioned. Je- Jesus absolutely did speak against homosexuality and all of these other things, whether he specifically named them or not, the word sexual immorality covers that. And, and so he, he, he did call this out. There is immorality. There is 
sin. I mean, that's, that's obviously a broader word than sexual immorality. Sin is, I think it's probably the way we describe sin. That's for places where God said no. And we don't like being told no. I'm not just saying that about the, ooh, the bad people out there. You don't like being told no any more than they do out there. Why are you surprised they're offended and hurt when you call something as a sin when you yourself don't like being told no? That's what makes us Americans. Nobody can tell me no. Right? We don't like being told no. Folks, when God says no, it's because he wants mercy, peace, and love multiplied into your life. And he knows if you go down that path, something down that path is going to take mercy, peace, and love from you. It's out of love, I tell you, the individual, or you, the culture, the society, that, that's going to be a no. There is still sexual immorality. There is still sin. It's not a culture. It's not a person that defines that. It's not a pastor that defines that. It is God and his word that defines that. And it's this that we are called to contend. Okay, so how do I do that? What does that look like? Well, we see in Jude, I also referred last week to Paul, there's a way we contend in and with the world. There is a way we contend in with the church. Now, matter of fact, I want to read Paul again. I think it's such a clear statement, and we seem to have been mostly ignorant or, or just in rebellion to this clear passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or greedy or swindlers or idolaters. You'd have to leave the world. No, I'm not telling you not to. How are you going to share the gospel with them if you don't associate with them? No, I was talking about, and now I'm going to write to you, not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So God is saying, hey, when you've got somebody saying, I'm a Christian... And they're devoted to their sin. They're devoted to advancing their sin. That's who we don't even associate with. Now, Paul's doing a high flyover here. Okay, that's not his big point. When you get to some other passages, he actually says there's a process. We don't immediately abandon each other. We, we don't judge each other. We don't abandon each other. There's a process by which I, we would get to a place where we don't even eat with somebody. And actually, Jude is going to look at that process next week. How do we do that where we get to where we don't even eat? But our focus today is out there, outside the body of Christ. Look what he says in verse 12, or listen. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? That's what the ESV, last week in the NLT, it said, I don't have the responsibility of judging outsiders. Do you know who else said that? The Archangel Michael. You read it. We read it just now. You know, Jude 5 through 16, boy, has some, whoo, some challenging ideas. Ideas we haven't heard anywhere else in the Bible, seen anywhere else in the Bible, and it comes across and make wait what did i just what did i just read one of one of those passages was there's talking about they're fighting over the body of moses 
Jude and, and, or not Jude, the archangel Michael and Satan. And in that, Satan begins to blaspheme and the archangel Michael steps back and says, the Lord rebuke you. That's a fancy way of saying you're in God's hands now. And he said that Michael would not presume to announce a blasphemous judgment. Do you hear that? Judging someone, something is blasphemy because you're taking a place only God can hold. Why can only God hold that place? Because God has all knowledge and you and I don't. You know, I've looked at a person or a situation, you know, I've got, I've got kids, right? I, I mean, I got to make a judgment here of what we're going to do in this moment. And I know what I know. I know what I saw. I know what I heard. And I can, I can bring down the judgment. But you know, I, as much as I think I know everything there is to know there, I never know everything. I don't really know what was going on in the heart and mind. I don't know what went on five minutes before everything I saw and heard or a day before or ten years before. I, I, I don't know how actually my judgment will play out. There's so much actually I don't know. God, that's not, none of that's true for him. He knows all of it. Only he, not even the, Ar- Mike, the archangel Michael thought he could do this. He said, I leave that to God. Paul said, I leave that to God. So why are you and I so comfortable doing it? Why are you and I so comfortable looking at a person and a group of people and making a judgment about who they are and what they are and what they're worthy of? So how did you know I do that? Because every one of us has at one time thought, I know because I've done it. You look at a person and you think, oh, they don't want to hear the gospel. Oh, I don't, I don't want to talk about God with them. They, they won't like that. And you know what I'm literally doing? I'm making a judgment about the, their eternal soul. And I'm literally saying in that moment, I won't give them the gospel. I won't even try. I won't even engage because I've made a judgment about their life that really honestly is damning them to hell. And the archangel Michael said, oh, man, that's blasphemy, Randy. I'd be careful if I were you. You know why else I can't judge? Because I'm guilty. Maybe not of the specific thing or person that I'm looking at, but folks, honestly, it's just guilty people throwing stones at guilty people. Nobody here is operating from innocent. God is. God's operates. There's quite a few reasons why God is in the right and in the position to judge, and you and I are not in that position. So if I'm not to judge them and what's going on out there in the world, well, well, what am I supposed to do? Okay, here's how we contend with the world. Share the gospel and leave the rest to God. Share the gospel and leave the rest to God. You want to make a change in government? You want to make a change in the culture and the attitudes and, and the action? Make a change in the, the media? I mean, every one of us looking somewhere out there and thinking, man, that's got to change. You know what you need to do? You need to share the gospel because only the gospel, only, 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 only the gospel changes a heart and a mind. Now, hey, if I want to make change... Now, this changes from one culture to another, but in America, I can certainly make change by voting. So the gospel is not the only thing I can do. I mean, I can also vote, and and, and when I vote, maybe I'm hoping that a, a certain leader brings about certain laws, and that makes people do what they're supposed to do, or not do what they're not supposed to do, right? 
Okay, and laws can do that. And sometimes that's what we need laws to do. But you do understand, if the law is the only thing bringing about a change, we don't have a change. Because something's brewing underneath, right? The, the law may be keeping me from doing this, but underneath it's brewing. And what we're experiencing right now in America is every direction, every side, every way, there's something brewing underneath. And, and it's coming up and, and, it's, and it's coming out. You see, so while I do need to vote and I do need those, they don't really change. You know, Peter gives us some things we need to do in his letters. He's writing to a people overwhelmed by the evil, starting to suffer and be attacked because of the evil. And you know what he says to do? He says, hey, make sure you're obeying the law. Okay, you know, if you're going to be stupid and disobey the law, then that's on you. You can deal with that all by yourself. But hey, let's make sure in a, in a world where we're being attacked, we're law-abiding citizens. And then he said, hey, be a force for good. Do good. Not because you're being plotted, not because they're going to appreciate it. He did say, hey, you might make their argument a little harder if you are such a force for good. But do good. Always be operating for good. Folks, that idea is a lot of what's behind the vision of our church. To be a church that our community cannot imagine being without. You know, our our goal in that, folks, is not to be the best church in our community. That is nothing like, nowhere clear what we're saying in that. I I, I don't want to be, I don't need to be the best church. I hope every church in our community is the best church in our community. Okay, they're not the enemy. <laughs> they're, they're not who I'm trying to beat. And I want every church because in that good, we're building a platform for doing what? Sharing the gospel. Our vision, not the goal, our vision is how we see ourselves hitting the goal. And our goal is right out there. Well, you know, there's that desk I talk about every week. And above the desk, it says next steps. When you go out there today, look above next steps. It says, connecting all people to God-sized life and love. That's our mission. That's what we're about. We're trying to connect every person we can to God-sized life, God-sized love. How do we do that? Through the gospel. It's through the gospel. The gospel is going to bring about change. Now, I, I, you know, I get it. I, you, you know, most of us, we're going to share the gospel one person at a time. That seems a little slow. I mean, when the world's spinning out of control, like it is, you know, one, one person prayed to receive Christ. Does, don't, don't feel a big change in that, right? Well, it is slow if there's only three of us doing it. But, but what if, just pick a number. What if 1,200 of us left here? That's not even everybody. But 1,200 of us left here every single week and shared the gospel with somebody. Now, that's a lot of people. Hey, what if every church was doing that? It'd be different numbers leaving each church. But what if every believer, every day? Now, we're not talking about a little bit. You know, from folks, a big part of our problem in America is that the believers have not done what God told them to do to make a change and to protect society. We may have done a lot of good things, but we've not done the thing. Share the gospel. Well, I did share the gospel, and that didn't change anything about what I saw on the news last night. I did share the gospel, and that didn't change that, that election. Hey, you, you may not see an immediate change to a specific issue or problem, but it always changes. 
change that person. And when that person is changed, there's now a chance for a change in that home they enter and that street they live on and the community they live in. There is an eternal change. It is one by one that we've been set to the task. Well, pastor, you're talking like every time we share the gospel, somebody's going to come to Christ. No, no, they're not. As a matter of fact, if, if I believe what Jesus said, most of the people I share the gospel with will not come to Christ. Most are going to stay committed, if not just to their sin, they're going to stay committed to promoting and applauding that sin in a culture and a community. What do I do then? Well, leave it to God. Leave it to, I can't judge. I'm not in a position to attack because attacking is judging, right? You are worthy of my attack. You're, you're, a, you're worthy of my hate. You are worthy of me working against you. That, that's a judgment. No, leave it to God. And then what Jude does is he gives us three illustrations where evil is running amok. And it's real interesting, the illustrations he used. One is in the angelic realm, two are in the human realm. So whether we're, we're speaking in the physical realm or the spiritual realm, God's got it. Whether we're speaking about what we can see and touch or can't see and touch, God's got it. And in the human realm, he gives two illustrations. One is inside the community of faith and the other is outside the community of faith. In other words, folks, no matter where evil's running amok, God's got it. He has a long history of I've got it. I don't need you to do. I told you what to do. Go share the gospel. You leave this to me. What are his three illustrations? Well, one is, is they were leaving Israel. And man, do you know, folks, it's crazy. It didn't take them seven weeks. Think of the miracles they saw in Egypt as the Israelites were coming. Think of, wouldn't you have liked to have been, I'd like to have walked through the Red Sea. I'd like to have seen the walls of water on both sides. I think that'd be pretty cool. Can you imagine walking through and seeing that? And before, what is it, March, what is it, March 12th? Before we got to Mother's Day... We abandoned and rejected the God who held those waters back. Because that's what they did. And it's hard not to go, man, what is wrong with those people? Folks, God didn't put that story in there so you and I would go, what is wrong with those people? He put that story in there to show us what we're like. No matter what he does in our lives, we can walk away. We can turn. And, and then there it was just a, it was just a couple of ideas, some, some teachers, some ideas. Hey, do we really know who Moses is? Who really gave Moses all this authority? Hey, do we really know what God let us out? Hey, do we really, hey, you know what I think? I say we build a golden calf. And they're building it and they're worshiping it with what? Sexual immorality. And guess what? I imagine there was people there scared confused how did we do this what's becoming of us how did this happen but they're not the ones who stopped it god stopped it god brought god brought severe judgment we go to the second story and it's about some angels and they're leaving their boundaries you you just read that sentence and you huh what's happening here what what is this what is this about I mean, it's it's a little bit hard, a little bit confusing to understand that. Some people believe, I probably am one of those some people, 
that what Jude is referring to here is the story that we see in Genesis chapter 6, which doesn't help at all because the story in Genesis chapter 6 is one of the most difficult stories in the entire Bible to understand because it sounds like some angels had sex with women. And that just gets kind of weird and spooky, right? And so we're not really sure, are we interpreting that right? Do we understand it? Hey, here's the interesting thing about the way Jude uses this. Whether I understand what he's referring to or not, whether I know it's Genesis 6 he's pointing to or not, the point is the same. God dealt with it. God severely judged that. And that group of angels is not waiting for a great judgment day. Their great judgment day has already taken place. You know, there's a lot of evil angels still running around. We do know that, right? There is a group of evil angels already confined to darkness permanently and eternally. The ones Jude's referring to, possibly the ones that Genesis chapter 6 is talking about. Either way, God's got it. And then we get to the third illustration, and and Jude refers to Sodom and Gomorrah. Boy, that's a story from a long time ago, right? Do you know that story was a long time ago to Jude also? When Jude was referring to Sodom and Gomorrah, that's 1,500 years in the past. But he reaches back there and he grabs that story from 1,500 years ago and doesn't bring it just to today. He actually takes and puts it out there in the future. And he says, you see the fire fall there? It's the same fire that will burn eternally on that sin. God's got it. Now, as you and I keep hearing that, God's got it. God's got You look out there, who's going to do this? Who's going to change this? God's got Well, so does that mean we just do nothing? Share the gospel. You keep sharing the gospel. God's got it. So here's the comfort. God's got it. Here's the warning. In all of these illustrations, there was a moment the sin began and there was a moment the judgment came. In between, real lives were lost. Real people were lost, some physically, all spiritually. Real damage was done. Which is saying, while we are waiting on God, God's got it. What are you and I to be doing? Contending. He's coming back kind of full circle to to verse 3 and saying, this is the motivation. This is the energy. This is the reason that we have to contend. And we've got to be clear about what that means in the world. We've got to be clear about what that means in the church. Next week, we'll be looking at what that means in the church. You know, folks, over and over, we see the biblical writers making this distinction that you and I've got to have a clarity and an understanding. Let me add one more. We're not going to spend any time on this verse. I'm just showing, trying to show you the consistency and the clarity throughout the New Testament. We've heard Jude. We've heard Paul. Look what Peter says in Second Peter. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from their trials. Hey, God knows where we are in America. God knows what we're dealing with, and God knows that may bring suffering into our life. Matter of fact, he's actually told us that's going to bring suffering, right? He, he knows where we are. He knows how to rescue us. And while he's rescuing in the right and perfect way, the right and perfect time, he also knows how to keep the ungodly, the unrighteous, under punishment until the day of judgment, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. 
You know, it's interesting in the New Testament how many times sexual immorality is attached to despising authority. Why? Because I don't like being told no. The God in my life is any feeling I experience, any desire I have, and no one or nothing can say no to that, even to my own destruction. You know, folks, uh, wrapping up now, go back. I didn't spend any time on this, but you, you look at like verses 12 and, and beyond, and it's talking about these these false teachers and these false ideas and what they're like, what they're bringing. And you, you remember, I kind of emphasized it. One phrase used was waterless clouds. Remember, remember me saying that? They're like waterless clouds. Now, what does that mean? Well, it's referring to a drought. We've all been in a drought. We've all been watching the news. I mean, we knew it was hot. We knew it hadn't rained in forever. And then somewhere, I don't know what it takes to say this, but the weatherman says we are now officially in a drought. And you know what that means for most of us? It means our yard's going to die. That's about it. I'm going to lose the yard. They're going to put me on restrictions. But for the most part, we don't, we don't feel it a whole lot of other ways. Maybe a crop is lost, and so we'll feel it at the grocery store in a couple of months. Boy, a drought meant something back then. A drought is almost what always preceded a, uh, a famine. And because it was so agrarian, agricultural, then it also meant you're going to have economic collapse. So it was a lot worse than being hot and thirsty. They were looking at suffering that was going to go on for a long time. Man, when you're hurting like that and there's no end in sight, you're looking for help. You're looking for hope. And you wake up and you see a cloud off in the horizon. Don't you know it picks up your spirit? Don't, don't you know you're thinking, oh, oh, it's, it's going to rain. And you're hoping, man, that cloud is going to be here in a few minutes. It's going to, it's going to bring life giving, life restoring rain. And you've got, and here it comes and it's getting darker and it's getting thicker. And ah, there's a drop on the driveway. There's another drop on the driveway. And it, wait, what? And all of a sudden the clouds are thinning out again. They're dispersing and they're moving on. There's no rain. You realize how crushing that is if you've been in a drought for two or three years? You realize the hope you put in every single cloud? I'm going to say I think we live in a time, maybe every time is like this, but I think we live in a drought of meaningful love, meaningful identity, Meaningful purpose. And folks, we can only live that way for so long and we just, we start putting hope in everything. I, I made this last week. Folks, we've all done it and the people do it. There's periods in our life, times in our life where we're putting hope without the help of God's word, without the help of God to navigate this suffering. And the world's going to look out. They're looking on the horizon for any idea coming. And that's where Jude says those ideas are like waterless clouds. Man, I'm grabbing a hold of, hey, this will give me love. This will give me worth. This will give me an identity and a meaning and, and, and a purpose. And, and I grab a hold of it. It are going to be waterless. Sin doesn't work. You know, I say sin doesn't work. It actually does for a moment. 
Sin absolutely will make you laugh, will make you have fun, will give you pleasure, it will give you revenge, it can get you money, it can get you power, it can, there's a lot of things sin will do for a moment, but it always ends and it always leaves you more broken than when you picked it up. And folks, what our world is just sweeping up right now, it's going to leave them incredibly broken, much more broken than they are when they picked up that idea. I mean, in some ways, that's good news. They will leave what they're grabbing hold of, and they will look out to the horizon again for help and for hope. I think, I don't know if I'm right. I don't know why I say these numbers. I don't think it'll take that long. I think within the next 10 to 15 years, Individuals in this culture are going to experience a profound brokenness. And they're going to look out there for where the help comes from. And they know the word church and believers and Christians is always... What, let's, say we're, what, what, let's say we're out there in 2038. And I'm broken and I'm looking back over the last 15 years and what I did to get to this spot. When I look at the church, what will I remember about the church? That they held out the truth to me and they used it as a weapon to justify their hate with, for me, their disgust in me, their prejudice toward me. They, they used it as a weapon to say they were better than I am. Or did they hold out the truth in kindness, in love, in mercy? Understanding, they've been places I've been, and all there is is the gospel. You know, where gospel means good news, right? You ever been excited to share good news? Bet you couldn't wait to get home. I, I, I bet if I was in your home that day you wanted to share good news, I bet the moment you walked through the back door I could look at your face, right? I'd look at your face and I'd know, ooh, something good's coming. You can, you can tell it. The moment they begin to speak, you can tell there's an excitement. There's something good here. Yeah, that's just what good news does. Is that what our world sees in our face and hears in our voice? That we're carrying good news. Or is this a weapon for me to do what the archangel Michael didn't feel he could do? What the Apostle Paul didn't feel he could do. It's good news. Let's pray. Father, I, I, uh, I pray I would think much about that this week. <laughs> I pray all of us would. I, I would assume many, most of us in here would say we're recipients of the good news of Jesus Christ. And most of us who've received it probably know we're told that's the one way we operate in this world, to share that good news. God, I pray, I pray I think a lot about what people see as I carry the good news, what they hear as I carry the good news. And Lord, we know the good news said some hard things. It, a part of the good news is understanding the bad news. There is sin. 
But Lord, I pray they see in me, I pray they see in us, not waterless clouds, but they see Jesus who said, I am the living water. I fill, I restore, I give life. How incredible. Oh God, that we would give intense effort at sharing, at defending that good news. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. It's in your name we ask for help. Amen. Amen.